let me just make a comment about something that I've known and I've mentioned it to you. It may have been here last week, but something that just keeps coming back to me. The Bible teaches us that we are a spirit being. That's who you are. And your spirit has a soul. That's your mind, your will, and your emotions. It's basically your personality. And they live in your body. That's the part of you that if you pinch, it hurts. That, that's your body. It's, it's kind of your earth suit. It's what you walk around in and live in. The problem with most of us, almost most, many of us, most of us, is that we're much more conscious of our body than we are of who we really are. We're much more conscious of our body. We're much, it's like living your life more conscious of your clothes than you would of you. Imagine if you spent all your day just thinking about your clothes, some of you may, you know, what they look like, what they feel like, how well they're doing, and you became so conscious of your clothes, you lost an awareness of yourself. Well, you wouldn't eat, you wouldn't talk to people, you just, you know, how am I doing, what's my clothes look like? But in, in, and I never taught this before, but in reality, that's what most of us are doing. We're spent most of our day and a good, some part of our night sometimes, co- completely conscious, taking care of, looking at our body. Not just our physical body, but the senses of our body and what our senses are telling us. And, and, and we're, we, we do this so much that I think most of us aren't even conscious of it. And Pastor Ray and I had just a brief, wherever he is, had a brief conversation about this later today, and I've had to do this sometimes. Just kind of catch yourself in, in a, a funk, you know what that is? That just kind of, you know, ugh, you know. And, and, you know, and you just kind of, you know, I don't feel like praying, I don't feel like singing, I don't feel like coming to church. I just want to sit in front of my TV set because I'm tired tonight. Now, I know I'm talking to the choir here tonight because you're here. <laughs> but I want to inspire you about something. Because one of the things God's calling me back to is there's different types of tiredness. There is a physical tiredness. Your body does need rest. There's an emotional tiredness. Your soul needs rest. But there's a spiritual tiredness. And, And you need to know the difference because a lot of times... A lot of times, what we, what we need is to be spiritually energized. And I've shared this with you before. Most of you here tonight know this because that's in part why you're here tonight. That many times I've come to church, and even as a pastor, just figuring, oh, I'd much rather stay home and just you know, read a book, watch TV, go to bed early, or I've had a hard day. I'd much rather do this. But I have never come to church feeling that way without leaving stronger than when I came in. Now think about that a second. That isn't because I came in here and took a nap. Now some of you may, but it isn't because I came in here and took a nap because even if you did, you would be more rested at home than you are here. So something happened where you left here with more energy than when you came in and it wasn't because you had a meal and it wasn't because you took a nap. It's because your spirit was fed. So a lot of the tiredness that we deal with isn't physical tiredness. A lot of the tiredness we deal with and the, and the malaise we go through is not a physical or a, an emotional, it's a spiritual tiredness. And the, the answer to spiritual tiredness is spiritual food. And I'm sharing that with you because it's not just coming to church that does that. It's also when you don't feel like it opening your Bible and reading your Bible. It's also when you don't feel like it praying. 
I heard a preacher a long time ago say this, and it really touched me. He says, you're never stronger than when you're on your knees praying. You're never stronger, you're never more revitalized than when you're on your knees praying. Say, well, I don't always experience that. Then keep at it. Keep at it. Pray when you feel like it. Pray when you don't feel like it. Read your Bible when you feel like it. Read your Bible when you don't feel like it. In fact, when you don't feel like it is when you need to do it the most. Because when you give in to what you feel, the devil's won a small victory. And he's taken some territory. And if you give in today, you're going to be more inclined to give in tomorrow and more inclined to give in the next day. Our life is made up of a series of small choices. And those small choices lead you to a big result one way or the other. You got here tonight by a series of small choices. And you will succeed spiritually in life or fail spiritually in life through a series of small choices. That's why the Bible says it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. And the subtlety and the deception of those little things is because they're little things. Oh, that doesn't matter. I'll do it tomorrow. That doesn't matter. You know, I'll, you know I can handle that. And the road to destruction is made up with a lot of little choices like that. So you need to ask yourself, kind of along the lines we talked about Sunday morning, you need to ask yourself, where will this choice lead me if I say yes? And what direction will this choice lead me if I say no? And then ask yourself if you want to be moving in one direction or the other. Do you want to be getting stronger spiritually or weaker spiritually? Because when you put it off to tomorrow and say, well, I'm too tired to pray today. I'm too tired to read my Bible. I'm too tired to go to church today. I've got other things that I need to do. Then you've made a choice to get weaker spiritually. Yes. And the question is, when the enemy comes, and he will come knocking at your door, when the test comes, do you want to be stronger spiritually or weaker spiritually? Yes. Amen? All right, that's message number one. That wasn't in my notes at all, but I needed to hear that if you didn't. Praise the Lord. We're talking about prevailing prayer, which is prayer that, that gets results, prayer that prevails with God. And what we're talking about in this particular section that we're discussing, we're talking about the fact, in fact, go with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Not Hebrews, Ephesians chapter 6. I'm looking at Hebrews, that's what... Ephesians chapter 6, and we won't be there long. He said, I don't think so. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 10, is about spiritual warfare. And we're going to look in verse 18, because the, the first part of it is about how to stand in spiritual warfare, and then it talks about the armor of God, which is part of that spiritual battle. And the end focus of all this is in verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Praying always with all prayer. And that word all in the Greek language which this was written in means all manner or all types of prayer. And so we've seen from this that there are different types of prayer and they're based on the different purposes of prayer. Just as there's different types of communication which are based on, on whatever the purpose is. 
So, I mean, between a husband and wife, between my wife and I, there are different types of communication. Some of it is just informational things, you know, like, you know, uh, you know what's, on your, what's on the schedule for today? Or, you know, have, we made, have you made any appointments for us today? That's just passing information back and forth. And then there's a type of, in, there's a type of communication with us that may, that may be romantic. It's just, you know, I love you, dear. It's just strengthening and expressing the relationship with each other. Then there's other types of... They have different purposes. And, and, and as a husband, I better know which one this is. And many of us have made mistakes because we didn't understand which kind of conversation are we having here. What's the purpose of this conversation? Is it because you just, you know, you want, you want to know that I'm listening to you? Sometimes I've got to ask my wife, do you want me to listen or you're looking for answers? I just need to know which one this is because I don't always know. And, 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 and so I've got to know what kind of communication is this because the rules are different for depending on the kind of communication. Well, prayer is communicating with God. And it's important to understand there are different principles depending on the different types of prayer. And until we understand this, what we tend to do is mix prayer together and we can be operating by one set of principles when we're really trying to get results from a different type of prayer. So we begin to look at what some of these are and we're not dwelling on them. We could spend a whole series on any one of these because we're we're headed towards one and I trust we're going to at least get there tonight. And the first type we talked about is a prayer of consecration. Consecration. And that's a prayer, and the model of that is Jesus in the garden where he says to the Father, where he's wrestling with the decision of whether or not he's going to be obedient to what God has called him to do, which is to go to the cross, or whether he's going to exercise his own will. And he basically says, not my will, but your will be done. So this is a prayer that has as its core, your will be done. Whatever you want done in this situation, Father, that's what I'm asking to do. And that's because that's the purpose of that type of prayer. It's important to understand that that type of prayer operates on that principle. And that is a prayer that's appropriate to do on a regular basis. I do that regularly. Just open my heart back before God and set myself that that purpose of my life is to live for His purposes and not for mine. Then there's a prayer of commitment we talked about. And that's where you take the cares of your life and you roll them over on Him. And in that type of prayer, you've got to give something to God and then you've got to let it go. You can't pick it back up again. It doesn't mean you can't thank God for it, but you can't keep praying the same thing over and over again because once you've given it to Him, if you give it back to Him, that means you had to pick it up again. And so we've talked about that. Then there's a prayer of worship, which is just loving God. It's kind of like telling my wife, I love you, you know, there's no one else but you. And it's doing that with God. And there's really no, there's no, there's no uh, rules about that. It's just opening your heart to Him and just pouring it at them however you choose to do it and he enjoys hearing it however you choose to do it then there's a prayer of of of, um, of agreement which we talked about last time and Matthew 18 uh, talks about the prayer of agreement we talked about that that means you're being in harmony with other another so in order to do that I've got to know what you're what you're praying and you got to know what I'm praying not just the words but the intent of our heart are we really in agreement are we in harmony about this because if we're not it's not a prayer of agreement it's a prayer of disagreement. We're going in op- different directions, and the, that prayer works on the principle of unity. And we looked back in Genesis chapter 11 and saw that principle there. 
And then we ended last time, there's united prayer, which is when we all come together. We talked about the great power of united prayer, and we looked at an example in, in a, um, Acts chapter 4, and there are other examples where they came together and they prayed together of one accord. Also Acts chapter 2, when the out, pure Holy Spirit is poured out, was when they were praying a united prayer. They were there together with one purpose and with one accord. And then we ended up by pray, uh, talking about praying in the Spirit and what that is. That's praying, that, uh, praying in an unknown tongue. It is, it is in, we saw in 1 Corinthians 14, it's my spirit prays mysteries to God. So it's a way to pray and get around the obstacles that are in your mind and commune directly, directly with God. And now uh, we're going to look at, at um, uh, another type of prayer. And this is one of the more common types. And this is the one that is the most commonly confused with the prayer we're going to be focusing on. Turn with me to Mark chapter, um, uh, well, let's go to, excuse me, James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We've talked about this a little bit before in this series. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally, without reproach, and it will be given to him. Astounding verse. If any of you lacks wisdom, so it's talking about something that we need, that we lack, and we're going to come to God and ask him to provide it for us. Right away it tells us several things about God. It says, ask him, and he gives to all. He gives to all. Not just the pastor, not just his chosen few, he gives to all. And how does he give? Liberally, generously, and without reproach. That means he won't laugh at you. There's no such thing as a stupid question to God. Because if you stop and think about it, they're all stupid questions to God. Because all of us are stupid compared to God. None of us, if we ever think we can come to God with an intelligent question, we fooled ourselves. If you ever think you've gotten so sophisticated that God's impressed with you, you've really fooled yourself. I have to remind myself periodically when I feel like I'm acting childish with God, I am a child in God's eyes. Now, I'm not supposed to be child, excuse me, childlike, not childish. We're not supposed to be childish, but childlike. And so he does it without reproach, and it will be given to him. But look at verse 6. Here's the condition, and we talked about this a long time ago. But let him ask in faith, nothing doubting. So there is a prayer, there is a type of prayer where you are coming to God and you are asking something from him in faith. And this is called the prayer of faith. And I want to break it down tonight because if you break, we break it down to the simplest components, you will understand why if you are praying for the type of prayer we're going to talk about, which is basically interceding for somebody else, why these principles for the prayer of faith don't all work there. Because it has a different goal in mind and it functions under different principles because it's trying to accomplish something that is different. So this, what we're going to talk about tonight, at least in part, is called the prayer of faith, and here you see it. Let him ask in faith 
with nothing doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed about by the wind. Let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what we see in here is this is, this is a request where we're asking God for something that we need, not something someone else needs. This is a prayer where you're going to God and you're asking Him to meet something in your life, something between God and you, and you have to ask it in faith. All of these have to be done in faith. But here we see the part of the elements. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. Verse 7, Let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. So the prayer of faith is where you're coming to God and you're asking God for something to be done or given to you. So this is simply between you and God. This is simply between you and God, and notice he tells us in that situation to come and ask. Now, I've read with some good teachers that I've read elsewhere. I've heard people speak and teach. You know, well, we cannot ask anything for ourselves. Our prayers always have to be for somebody else. But he says, talking about asking something that you need. And so this is a prayer, this is a transaction, this is a communication between God and you for something He has and you need. It doesn't, it's not something somebody else needs, that's a different type of prayer. It's not something for the benefit of someone else, this is just you and, and God. And because it's between you and God, there are certain principles that bear here that you cannot operate in other places. And the other, on the other token, there are some things you need to operate in other types of prayer that won't work here because there's nobody else involved. It's just you and God. All right. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. Well, there's only two here that can doubt because there's only two in this transaction. There's God and there's you. So the only one, we know God doesn't doubt. So the only one he's got to be talking about here who can't be doubting if this is going to work is me or if it's you in your case. So the first principle is I have to ask. Now we've mentioned this before. This is so profound and simple we skip over it because we kind of assume it. But I've said this to you before, and I never thought about it until we got into this series. The only kind of prayer I guarantee to you God never answers is the one you don't ask. Chapter 4 of James, he says, you have not because you ask not. So the first thing when it comes to the prayer of faith is you have to ask. You have to ask. Say, why do I have to ask? Because Matthew 6 says, don't you know that your father knows what you need before you ask him? Then how come I've got to ask him? Well, we talked about that a number of weeks ago. And I'm not going to go back over that. You need to go back and you can get the notes on, online at the, in the, on the website or you can go get it from the bookstore. But we, I talked, there were several nights I talked about, about why God requires us. Why does, why does He need us to come and ask Him for something He already wants to do and he's, He has the power to do. And we learned that because God needs 
us to authorize him to operate in this natural realm apart from something supernatural. He needs us to authorize him because he delegated that authority to man. And that's, just tr- that's also true about your life. There are many situations where he cannot intervene in your life unless you ask him to, unless you give him permission. So the first thing when it comes to the prayer of faith is you have to ask. You have to ask. And you must ask in faith, nothing doubting. Now turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. These are the foundational scriptures on the prayer of faith. There are others we could look at. And of course, this is in a series of scriptures where Jesus has cursed the fig tree and they went back into the garden for the night. They come back through in the morning on the way back into the city and as they come back, Peter notices that the fig tree he cursed the day before has withered from its roots up and he says to the master, verse 21, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed, it's withered away. And Jesus answered and said to him, Have faith in God, or the faith of God, literally in the Greek it says. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be taken up and removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Verse 24, Therefore I say unto you, Whatsoever things you ask, when you pray, Believe that you receive them, and you will have them. So the first principle of the prayer of faith is you have to ask. You have to ask. The second thing is we learn here is that when you ask, you have to believe that you received it. Now let me ask you a question. In what Jesus is saying here, When do you have to believe you received it? When you ask. Now think about that. In the normal course of life, in our normal dealing with each other, in this natural sense realm which we are so conscious of, the way you know you receive something is when it's in your hand. So if I promise Joe that I'm going to give him my iPhone. And you ask Joe, do you have it yet? Joe's going to say, I don't have it yet. I I believe I'm going to have it. I I believe I'm going to get it, but I don't have it yet. Why? Because it's not in my hands yet. It's still in Pastor John's hands. And so in the normal course of events, and this is so ingrained in us from from a child on up, And this is where a lot of us struggle because although we may understand in our mind this principle, it's not believing it in your mind, it's believing it in your heart. We're so ingrained in us that the proof that I have it is I can see it. I can touch it. I can smell it. I can, if the alarm goes off, I can hear it. So that's the proof. So when I know I have it, in the, all the normal course of events, the way I know I have it, the way I know I've received it, is because I can touch it. it. It's tangible to me. My senses confirm that I have it. 
And this is why I struggled for so long to understand this and to grasp it, and then even when I began to understand it, to exercise it, because what Jesus is saying here is the prayer of faith requires that you believe that you received it when you asked for it. Because look at the order here. Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever things you ask or desire, King James says, when you pray, when you ask, believe that you received it, and then you will have it. So when it comes to the prayer of faith, the, or, the natural order of things is reversed. So that we have to believe that we already have it before we have it. <laughs> we have to believe we've received it before it's actually in our physical possession. I struggle with that for a while. I really, I mean, I've been already been through Bible school run by the man that quoted this every day, and I still didn't get it. And I, even when I saw it here, I said, all right, I need confirmation of it. Romans chapter 4. Now, this section of Scripture, Paul is teaching here is about the doctrine that we are saved by grace, received through faith. And that our justification, our right standing before God, is not based on how well we fulfilled the law, because he makes very clear in chapter 3, you can't do that enough. And he ends chapter 3 by saying, the, 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 when you, when you, the fact that you cannot earn your own righteousness is what qualifies you to receive it by grace. It's given from God by grace. That's God's side. But we receive it by faith. So in chapter 4, he begins to explain what that faith is by which we've received this grace of righteousness that we didn't earn. It's a free gift. But every gift has to be received, or even legally, it's not a completed gift. Under the, the law of gifts, under common law, a gift is not a completed transaction until, right, until you've received it. The giver has to intend to give it, and the donee, not the donut, the donee has to, act an act of their will, receive that gift or else the transaction is not completed. And that accurately represents what has to happen between God and us. But the way we receive it from God is by faith before we see it. And so here, Paul now is going to explain, break down the elements of faith so we can understand how we received this gift of grace by faith. And it starts in verse 17. Well, verse 16. Therefore it, that's the gift of righteousness, is given to us by faith so that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise may be sure or certain to all the seed, that's us, not only to those who are of the law, that's the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. Now he's going to break down the elements of faith As it is written, 
This is what God has said about Abraham. I have made you a father of many nations. So the beginning here is a promise that God has made to Abraham. So faith always has to start with a promise because there's no such thing as blind faith because the essence of faith is you're taking somebody at their word enough that you believe it's done even though you don't see it yet. So you have to have their word about it before you can take them at their word. And so Paul is going back and showing you what the promise is that God made to Abraham that he believed. The promise was that God was, before this promise is made, God says what he's going to do for Abraham. He says it in chapter 12 of Genesis. He says it again in chapter 15. But when he gets in chapter 17, he changes the tense of it. And he says, as for me, which is my side of the transaction, God says, from my side of this transaction, I have already made you a father of many nations. And at this point, Abraham and Sarah have no children and no prospect because she's barren and they're both too old. And into that impossible situation, God made a promise. And God's promise is, as far as I'm concerned, I've already done this. So God says, it's, it's a done deal from my side. Now Abraham still has to respond to that. And his response is going to be key. By the way, everything that God says in His Word, every promise He's made to us in His Word, is already done in God's sight. 2 Corinthians, I think it's 2 or 3, says, says in Him, in Christ, is the Amen. It, the promise is made in Christ, and in us is the Amen. So God's already given to us. God's already done for us. God's already promised to us. Not, I will do it. I have done it. Just as He did to Abraham. So that the... Uh, verse 17. As it is written... So if you're going to stand on the prayer of faith, if you're going to come to God and ask something for you, the first thing to do is find a promise that God's made to you through His Word. Find Well, how do I do that? You've got to get into the book and find it. But we have in the bookstore all kinds of helps. Most of your Bibles have concordances in the back. And my goodness, we've got so many Bible applications out there. It's just, you know, I got three or four on my phone. There's one I use all the time. I've got like 35 or 40 Bibles in there and 500 books in there that I can, within a matter of seconds, get different concordances up. I am without excuse. And if you have trouble using that, find a child. And they'll show you how to use it. All right. As it is written, God says, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence or in the sight of him whom he believed. So from in God's mind, in God's sight, he's already done this. And that's important to us. Because if God says, I'm going to wait, we wait. But if God says it's done now, then it's up to us. Because we can't make God do anything. But He's already done it. 
As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the sight or the presence of him whom he believed. Even God. Now he's going to tell us something about what this God is able to do. Because it's important. Because if we looked in Mark chapter 11, verse 22, Jesus said the key is have faith in God. Not you. Not have faith in your faith. Have faith in who God is and what God's promised to do and what God's willing to do. So a lot of the times where we get hung up is we're trying to increase our faith by looking at ourselves and analyzing ourselves. Well, I'm not speaking the word. I'm not doing this enough. I'm not doing this enough. And we need to do those things, but our faith can't be in how many times I'm preaching, saying the word, how much I'm meditating. Those are principles that will help increase your faith because they help you to look at who God is. But the subtlety of the enemy is always to get you to be looking at you. Because you'll never measure up. Because I tell you, whatever you're doing, you're not doing it enough. And if you're doing it enough, you're not doing it hard enough. And if you're doing it hard enough, you're not doing it right enough. Because it's never enough if you're doing it. So it's to build our faith in who God is, and that's what he says here. And this is what Abraham believed about God. He believed two things about God, at least that are referred to here. First of all, God is a God, he's talking about here what God who made the promise is capable of doing. Because it's one thing for someone to make a promise, it's another thing to be able to carry out the promise. So if I promised every one of you tonight that when you leave here, I'm going to give each of you a million dollars. I may mean that with all my heart, I may be as sincere as I possibly can, but don't wait too long at the door. Because although I may want to, and I may be sincere, I don't have the ability at this point to do that. And so the next thing we need to know is that the God who's made the promise is well able to do it. So he tells us two things about God that he knew and he had his confidence in. And the first thing is this God that made the promise to him is a God who is able and raises the dead. Now, why is that particular aspect of God important? Because remember what the problem is from Abraham's side and Sarah's side. He is too old to produce children, and she is too old and barren. So they have not, listen carefully, they've not been able to produce life themselves through their own natural process. So the thing God has made a promise to them about, and it was on purpose, was something that they have no ability to do themselves anymore. They don't have the strength, they don't have the resources within themselves to produce this result. And that's what God picks and chooses to make a promise to them. Why? So that eventually their trust and their confidence and the glory for what's done would not be in anything that they did or contributed to it. So the thing that Abraham is believing about God is not that God will supply all his needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God will do that also. Abraham doesn't need that. He needs to know what God can do about this particular problem that they have, which is they're both barren and too old. This is an inability that they have right now to meet a desire and a need they have. And so the thing that he believes about God, who's by the way made a promise about that, the thing that they believe about God is the reason they know he's able is this God can raise the dead. 
And that comes in handy when you're barren and too old. But it goes beyond that. Look what he says. Not only can he raise the dead, but he calls things into existence that never existed before. That's absolute power. That's creative power. That's a power that's not limited by your natural circumstances. That's a power that's not limited by the fact that she's been barren her whole life. That's a power that's not limited by the fact that she's too old and he's too old and they're too this and they're not enough this and they can't this and they don't know how to do this. It's not, he's not limited by that. Why? Because he has the absolute creative power that if it doesn't even exist, he can call it into existence. The church we went to in Tulsa had as an assistant pastor who had perfect hearing in both ears. The only problem is in his right ear he had no eardrum. How can that happen? Because God said he could hear. He can hear without an eardrum. Well, you can't do that, but he does. Why? Because whether you have an eardrum or not doesn't limit God. whether they've come up with a cure for it or not, doesn't limit God. I mean, the fact that there were blind eyes didn't limit Jesus, did it? The fact that the storms were raising didn't limit Him, did it? The fact that He didn't have a boat at one point didn't limit Him, did it? See, there was no such thing, listen carefully, there was no such thing as a natural circumstance that in any way limited hindered or slowed Jesus down. Why? Because he had absolute faith that the Father who had told him to come and do these things was not limited by the fact that there was no boat. Was not limited by the fact that the storm was raging. Was not limited by the fact that a man had been blind all his life. Was not limited by the fact that this man had never walked before. Was not limited by the fact that another man's limbs were all gnarled. Was not limited. Those circumstances that limit us don't even begin to be a blip in God's eyes. Why? Because He can call things into existence that never existed before. The Bible tells us that the universe came into existence because God said, let there be. The world's, the world's is not just this world, it's the entire, it's the entire universe, that word means, was framed, Hebrews 11.3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. First Hebrews 1.3 says that all things are still held together by the power of that word, let there be. So God called the universe into existence out of nothing. What's a little child in this woman's womb? When God can call a universe into existence out of nothing, and it's still held together by the power of that initial word. And I'll build your faith up in God. Just look at the universe. I was thinking about just how our body operates the other day. I had, I don't know, some cut or something was wrong in my body, and I realized after several days that it healed itself. 
And we take that for granted, but stop and think about that. Stop and think about the fact. Do you understand that there is not a cell in your body that you had several years ago? I forgot. My doctor told me. We, I don't know if Dr. Roche is in here or somebody's in here. to tell you, there's some of them in your body that are replaced very regularly. And that all started when you were conceived in your parent, mother's womb. The healing that goes on in your body, the beating of your heart, all that start was initiated when that first cell was fertilized. Life was birthed in you. And the force and the intricacy and the genius of that life continues to function in your body when you're awake, when you're asleep. And 99.9% of the time, we don't even think about it. And it still operates. Not only does it operate in my body, it's also operating in yours and everybody else on the face of the earth right now. All because God said. Wow. And our brilliant scientists, and they are, with all the education and the instruments and, you know, electronic this and magnetic this and all this stuff, they're still just beginning to discover the genius. When God said, let there be. Wow. And he said to Abraham, as far as I'm concerned, I've made you a father of many nations. So Abraham's choice is, well, can this God do what he said he can do? And that's Abraham's conclusion. Well, if he can raise the dead, and if he can call things into existence that have never existed before and hold them into existence by just that word of creation, I think he probably has put a good shot at accomplishing his promise. But let's go on. Verse 18. Now we're going to talk about Abraham's side. Who contrary to hope, that's natural hope, in hope believed. Who against hope, in hope, some translations say. In other words, against all natural reasons to hope, he still hoped. Understand that the word hope in the New Testament, the Greek word, does not mean hope the way you and I typically think of it. Which is, you know, is is it going to warm up again? I hope so. No, it's a confidence. It's a confident, steadfast assurance. So in hope, contrary to hope, in hope, look at this, he believed so that he might become. Notice that same order. He believed God's promise so that he might become what God already promised him. So God has to promise. If God doesn't promise, you can believe and hope all you want. You're going to just for eternity be believing and hoping. But once God's promised, because this is the prayer of faith, where God makes a promise and by faith I receive that into my life. If God's made a promise, then I have every right to believe that that promise is mine. But I've got to hope. Starts with hope. Because remember, faith, Hebrews 11.1, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So 
without hope, there's nothing to give substance to. Hope is like your thermostat. And I've used this example before. It wasn't started with me, but it's so good, I want to use it. Hope is like your thermostat. You get up maybe this morning, it was kind of chilly, and you thought you could turn your furnace off, and you found out, "Mm, not yet. So you turn your furnace up to where you want the temperature in your house to be. You've just set your hope. You've set what you want. But you can turn that furnace set up all you want. If the furnace isn't turned on, it's not going to get there because the thermostat has no power in it. It simply tells the power what you want, what you expect, what you're hoping for. But if your thermostat is connected to a furnace that either has gas or has a power source and they're connected properly, then that temperature, that thermostat, when it gets to that temperature, it's going to trigger the power that's in that furnace, which will release the heat, which will then bring the temperature in your house up to what you hope for. So the furnace gives substance to what the thermostat hoped for. So you need the thermostat, otherwise you've got a furnace down there, you've got the power to raise it to 120. But it's not going to budge because it won't do anything unless the thermostat tells it what you want. So hope sets the goal. So if we don't hope, our faith isn't striving for something. It isn't asking for something. It's not expecting anything. And what we often want to do is we want to have some proof it's going to happen before we'll let our hopes get up. And you'll hear for somebody that seriously, oh, don't talk to them. You you don't want to get their hopes up. You've got to get their hopes up. Because if they don't get their hopes up, there's nothing for their faith to give substance to. Your faith can't go beyond your hope. Well, where do I get hope from? Testimonies, stories about how what God's done for other people. There are stories in the Bible of what God's done for other people. But don't confuse hope and faith. And this is where a lot of people fail. They get full of hope, and they think that hope is faith. Hope is always future-oriented. And you can tell when you listen to somebody, because you'll ask them, you know, do you, tell me what, well, I, I, you know, is God going to, you know, when we pray, what's going to happen? I believe God's going to heal me. Then that's hope. Yes, it's going to happen. That sets your expectation. But notice, Jesus said, you must believe when you pray that you received it. That's now when I pray. Paul says, you've got to believe in order that you become. So you've got to believe now that God's given something to you now and you possess it now before you're going to see it. And that's contrary to the way we were raised to think, even to the point that some people might say, well, that's lying. Not when God does it, it's not lying. It would be lying if I were dealing with something in the natural But when it comes to receiving something that exists for me already in the spirit realm, but in order to receive it into this realm, I've got to begin to act as if it's mine. Otherwise, I can't receive it because I don't believe it belongs to me. 
So this is just a function of spiritual principles that have to happen for receiving something. So what I want you to see here is he says, I believe in order that I might become according to that which was spoken, according to the promise. So shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he did not consider. Now you'll see some translations said he did consider because there's two different versions of it. But it basically means the same thing. He wasn't moved by what his body told him. And I'll show you why. Being already dead since it was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Notice, God can raise the dead, but it's the deadness of Sarah's womb that's the problem. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. Remember James says, and do not doubt in your heart. And I mentioned this earlier when we talked about this principle a little bit earlier. A lot of people don't understand this. You can believe something in your head and doubt it in your heart. And you can believe something in your heart and have doubt in your head. Notice he doesn't talk at all about what your head's thinking. He talks about what you believe in your heart. Why? Because healing from God is a spiritual force. I'll probably talk a little bit about this on Sunday night. Medical science heals through manipulating your body. Antibiotics trigger antibodies in your body. If they, they give you a, a small version of some kind of bacteria and it triggers the antibodies that your body has to fight that bacteria and by doing that it builds up an immunity. That's what immunization does. It builds up an immunity by, by playing games with your immune system to trigger an immunity. So medical science uses the things of this world and uses your body to heal it and there's nothing wrong with that. There are Christian science and things like that that try to use the mind and overcoming matter with mind. And there's some degree you can do that. But many things that won't work on. But healing from God is the exercise of a spiritual force. And I want to explain that. Again, I may get into the Sunday night. A spiritual force is more powerful than the natural circumstances. And here's where we're going to see it. Because look at this. And I was meditating this one day, and it suddenly went off of me. He didn't waver at the promise of God through unbelief. Here's what he's dealing with. God's made a promise, which is crazy in the natural. Wait a minute. And of course, we know if you look back in Genesis, both Abraham and Sarah at one point laugh at God's promise. So they were, thought it was kind of crazy at first too. God's promise is, I'm going to take your dead womb, Sarah, and I'm going to make it alive. And I'm going to take your old age, and you're going to begin to produce children in your old age when you couldn't produce them before. And Abraham, when I'm going to give you the ability, not only am I going to give you a child, that child, you're going to be the father of many nations. That's absurd in the natural scheme of things. Not only that, their body's talking to them. You know your body will talk to you or your mind talks to you. You, know. you get up in the morning when you're that age and you're looking at your body and you look at her and you say, yeah, you're beautiful, but... And I know I'm, you know, I'm still macho man, but... 
I see a few wrinkles where they were, weren't there before. And, you know, I may not be standing up quite so straight. And I may have a little, little bit of trouble hearing quite the way I did, you know. And my body's t- your body tells you things or your mind interprets your body and tells you things. So the point is, you know, they're having to deal every day with this body. And if you're, if, you're, if you're standing for a physical healing, you're dealing with physical symptoms. It may be pain. It may be that you can see something. You can see a lump or you can feel something in your body. And that's there all the time. You, you know, you've got to answer that. Because it says, yeah, I know you're praying, but I'm still here. And this is where you've got to draw this line in your mind. So What? It's irrelevant that you're still here. What difference does it, the growth still here? Well, you know, it's got to begin to disappear. Who said so? Jesus spoke to things and they disappeared. Matthew chapter 15, around verse 35, among the crowd that came to him were the lame, that's limbs that don't work, and the maimed, that's limbs that are missing. And he made them whole. That means that limb has to grow out. And it says the crowd saw this happen. How can that happen? Because this God that made the promise can raise the dead and call things into existence that never existed before. Why? God operates in a spiritual power. And that spiritual power doesn't have to operate under the principles of natural science. That spiritual power doesn't have to wait for the antibodies to kick in and begin to fight the disease. That spiritual power doesn't have to wait for the blood to begin to flow right. That spiritual power didn't have to wait for anything in the beginning when God said, Let there be! That didn't depend on anything. So I'm reading through it and I'm saying, how could he stand and not waver in unbelief at the promise of God and it suddenly saw me? When the God who made the promise can raise the dead and the God who made the promise can call things into existence that don't exist, what difference does your body have to do with it? What difference? I mean, she's too old. What difference does it have to do with it? This God can speak a body into existence that never existed. If he just wanted to speak Isaac into existence and have him just show up, he could have done that. Have faith in God. And this is where we get hung up because we're so indoctrinated by the way we've been raised and the natural world around us, which all depends on science. It all depends on understanding how this works. It all depends on all that. And that's fine when it comes to your doctor working on your body. It's fine when it comes to the other things. But when it comes to God, He's not dependent on the doctors. He's not dependent on your corpuscles. He's not dependent on bacteria. He's not dependent on anything because this God can and raise the dead, and this God can cause things into existence that never existed before because He operates on a higher level, an absolute power, which is the spiritual power. But the problem is, for that to work, it has to be plugged in, and the plug is we have to believe we already received it just because He said so. Now, hopefully, you can understand why you can't pray the prayer of faith, and then ended it by saying, if it be your will. Because it starts out, you got to know to begin with. 
that it's his will, or you would have no basis for confidence that he's going to raise the dead or call situations into existence or deal or heal you or manifest this situation unless you know ahead of time. You have to have confidence uh, before you can believe God's going to do it. And because we've not understood the difference, we've mixed all kinds of things together, and we come in there hoping God's going to answer our prayer. Well, that gives you hope. But you've got to keep after it until that hope drops down inside, and you know that you know that you know that you know. And the way you know that you know is because the Bible says faith rests. You stop trying to get it because you already know you have it. For a year and a half, I did everything I knew how to have that woman for mine. Or she's going to get embarrassed again. But once she said, I do, I could rest in that. That doesn't mean I stopped wooing her but I didn't have to strive to have her because she'd already given herself to me. I could now rest in and enjoy the security of her love for me because she'd sealed that desire by making a vow before God that I belonged to her and I made a vow before God that that she belonged to me and that I belonged to her. So we could now rest in that. I've got to end with this. A number of years ago, I have a stepbrother, and he was, none of us were saved at the time, and, and he was living with a woman who then he later married, and he came to me, we'd been married, I think, four years or so, and he said to me, why, why did you get married? In other words, you know, just live together. And I said, I, we got married for the same reason you haven't. We realized we needed a certainty and a stability into this relationship in order for it to grow. You're afraid to get married because you're afraid of making the commitment and that fear of making the commitment is going to create the instability. The same is true with God. If you don't know it's God's will, then you won't have the security in order to rest in it. But when you've received it, you don't have to strive after it anymore. You can rest in it, be thankful for it, rejoice in it, but you don't have to go around doing anything to get it because you know it's already yours. And until you come to that place, you're not there yet. You've got to keep meditating. You've got to keep studying. You've got to keep speaking it until it, when it drops down inside of you, you know it because you come to that place of rest. And once you've tasted it, you know when it's there and you know when it's not. We need to end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your abundant provision in our lives. Father, help us to take the things we've heard tonight by your spirit and from the word and begin to apply them into our lives. Help us to locate where we really are. Father, not because you're judging us or you want to criticize us, because you want to meet us where we are and bring us to the place that you're calling us to go. And for the grace to do that, we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.